Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you have indeed come to be the light in the darkness, that that light goes forth. Lord, we ask that we would carry your light, we would reflect your glory, we would preach your gospel to all nations and to our neighbors and to the friend, our friends and to those who hear it might come to accept it through your Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I had the opportunity this past weekend to uh, talk with a just-retired Cleveland policeman. Um, this man had been a policeman for, I think he told me, 34 years with the city of Cleveland, and then went to be a policeman uh, in the city of Avon. And he said, you know what? He said, I'd rather deal with people in Cleveland any day. And he said, I'll tell you why. He said, when I'm dealing with the poor, they're grateful. When I'm dealing with the rich, I can do nothing to please them. I thought about that. And then I thought about today's gospel reading and thought, you know, the gospel reading today is actually all about that theme. I'm not sure that you would have necessarily caught it. So we're going to go through that today. But that's where the readings today point, that unless we are poor in reference to God, unless we see our need and therefore are grateful to God, we can be of no use to him. And in fact, we might not even see him. So I invite you to open up with me to Matthew chapter 4, today's gospel reading that Father Joshua read to us. Matthew chapter 4. And as you're opening, we see two things. That Jesus goes to the darkest places to save, number one. And number two, Jesus saves us from our darkest places. Look at chapter 4, verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea and the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Now, if you're paying any attention at all, you probably noticed that there's a lot of geography being announced here in the gospel, right? We hear words like Galilee, Capernaum, Zebulun, Naphtali. What's going on here? Because there's much more going on here than just Jesus getting away from the authorities. First of all, very quickly, if you have a Bible with you, open to the back maps. We don't do this often enough. I think sometimes these places are foreign to us because we don't. 
Because, of course, the early readers of this, the Jews, would have known these places, right? Where's Galilee in reference to Jerusalem, say? Do you know? Look at the map. North. North. Where is it geographically? Is it a thriving metropolis area? No. It's the hill country. It's the hillbillies. Galilee is the hill country. Isaiah tells us this earlier in Isaiah 9, and we're going to come back to that. But you can't escape the geography of what's going on here. Jesus is not just getting away from Herod. Jesus is going up into the people who are forsaken, the people who are ignored, the people who don't matter so much in the mind of this culture. Jesus is withdrawing to the mountainous area. If that didn't strike you right away, that's okay. You know, you don't know the geography. But looking at the passage, the next part should strike you because Matthew, as the gospel writer, is highlighting it to us. Notice what goes on in verse 15. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. What's the gospeler doing here? He's saying that Jesus is going to this place to fulfill a prophecy. So there's more going on here than merely geography. You see, sometimes we read our Bibles and we just kind of gloss over these things, right? I don't know. I mean, I do. I don't know about, about you, but I can confess that I do. There's a lot going on beyond the story. If you know where to look, if you see the handholds to grab onto. So if you have a Bible that has any kind of reference or chain link on it, hopefully it shows you Isaiah 9 here is the source of what's being quoted, right? You all know Isaiah 9, right? What's Isaiah 9? You know it well from Christmas. I'll give you a hint. But I'm willing to bet that you don't know verse 1. Isaiah 9, The people in darkness who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased joy. They rejoice before you because of the joy of the harvest. You probably know this part. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken on this day in Midian. For unto us, this is verse 6, a child is born, to us a son is given. You know that part. But don't skip over verse 1, which has everything to do with today's gospel. Isaiah 9, 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Ah, do you see? You see what's going on here? You see what Matthew's doing? Sound familiar? But in the same, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea and beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Galilee of the nations. 
So what's Matthew saying? That Jesus is going to this hill country, that Jesus is going here to the darkest place. Do you know why this is the darkest place? How we know that? Because Isaiah is talking about this future that's going to be bright. Because currently in Isaiah, it is a very dark place. How do we know that? Well, again, look just before Isaiah 9.1. So Isaiah 8.21. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and against their God and turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth but behold distress and darkness the gloom of anguish and they will be thrust into thick darkness so Jesus is going to those people and Isaiah 9 is predicting Jesus going to those people What's the connection, aside from the exact quotation that Matthew uses here of Isaiah 9? We see the same story being weaved together and told in the Old Testament passage from Amos that our lay reader read this morning, right? What's going on in Amos? Who's being talked about there? These people. The prophet Amos, in chapter 3, is writing about these very people. And you know that if you know some of the geography. Ashdod is one of the great cities in this area. Right? So Amos chapter 3. Look with me at the Old Testament reading. It's all about their punishment, their strongholds being plundered, right? Look at verse 2, or verse 1, rather, of Amos 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have met to meet? He goes through some more poetry, but skip down with me. Verse 9 of Amos 3. Proclaim to the strongholds of Ashtod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. So here we have Amos speaking stereo with Isaiah about this great gloom that's going to come on this part of the country. 
what is this great gloom? You know? It's the beginning of the exile. This part of Galilee, the land of the Naphtali and Zebulun, is the first part of Israel to go. It's the first part to fall to King <coughs> Tilgath Pileser. I love his name. There's actually like three of them, I think. He's king of the Assyrians, and he comes down and he takes this land first because it's up north and it's easy to get to, it's easy to conquer. But God says that there's more than that. There's a spiritual darkness there too. There's a spiritual darkness there too. And so in 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 29, we read the story. In the times of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and took Ijon, Abel Beth Makkah, Genoa, Kadesh, and Hazor. He took Gilead and Galilee, including all the land of Naphtali, and deported the people to Assyria. This first invasion was not pretty at all. This first invasion, there's secular records of the Assyrians taking the Israelites and skinning them alive. There's reliefs of them being dragged back in chains as the exile goes on. And so indeed, it was a very dark time and a very dark place. Now, Jesus goes there first. Why? Why does Jesus go there first? Because it is the darkest place, both spiritually and in their experience as a people. And who does he find there? He finds four apostles. See, sometimes I think we think of the apostles and we don't realize their backstory. But the gospel today tells us about Peter and Andrew and James and John, two sets of brothers. And where do they come from? They come from this area, this dark people, this people who have been oppressed and suffered so much, fishermen, small businessmen, people struggling to survive. Look at verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so here we see in the gospel the beginning of Christ's ministry and the, the start of the call of the apostles. Here in this dark place. Did you ever wonder how it is that the apostles, Peter and Andrew and James and John, immediately follow Jesus? Because look at their response. Jesus says in verse 19, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, says Matthew, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately, verse 22, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Why do they immediately follow him? 
Well, first of all, I think it's important to note that this probably isn't their first encounter with Jesus. In John's Gospel that we read last week, we hear of Simon Peter and um, uh, Simon and John being with John the Baptist and seeing John the Baptist proclaim Jesus as the Lamb that has come. Remember from last week. But no, they drop their nets and they follow him immediately. Why? Because he is the Messiah. Because he's the one that's bringing light and hope to this dark land. Because they're impoverished enough to know that they need Jesus. That they are desperately in need of a Savior, of a Messiah. As we continue this year to focus on mission and evangelism and light in this epiphany season, I want to ask you, who are the impoverished people in your life? Who are the impoverished people in your life? Because they're there in your life and mine. And I'm not just talking monetary, although oftentimes humility comes with physical poorness. But who are those who are poor enough to desire the gospel? To desire the word of God, to not say, ah, I know it already, I don't need to hear any more about that. Who say, no, I need Jesus desperately. I need help in my life. And I might ask you, where do you stand on that? Because that starts there. Where do you stand in your need for Jesus? Is he someone that you take for granted? Is he someone that you just go to when you need a favor? Is he someone who, when he doesn't give you exactly what you ask for, you throw up your hands and say, God doesn't love me? Is that your Jesus? Or are you desperate for him? Desperate to be in his presence? Desperate to hear his word read from the lectern here? Desperate to be fed from his table, which we call an altar. Is that the center of who you are? Because it starts there, friends. And then secondly, who are the impoverished people around you? Because they're there. Who needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ around you? How are you presenting him and proclaiming him to those around you? And don't just tell me you live a good life and hope that people will see Jesus through you. That's bunk. Bullcrap. If I can say that. That's good, and that gives our witness credibility, but that's not proclaiming the gospel. You know that whole nonsense of, you know, proclaim the gospel and if necessary use words? It's, I think it's ascribed to St. Francis. It's actually a false quote. If you go and look it up, he didn't say that. He said, do both. Do both. Word and deed. Word and deed. Show people Jesus. Because we have good news. If we realize it. Jesus brings order into our chaotic lives. If we let him. 
Jesus changes our priorities and principles and values if we're obedient to him. Jesus gives purpose to your life. Do you know how many people walk these streets every day with no meaning or purpose for their life? Do you know why the suicide rate is so high today? Because people have no purpose or meaning in their life. And they get to a dead end in their pleasure. Or they get to a dead end in the road that they've been taking, whatever it is. Money, power, pleasure, you name it. And they say, there's nothing for me here. I might as well just end it. So they go and end it. And you know what? If that's all there is, they're not wrong. Suicide makes perfect sense, frankly. If you have no meaning or purpose, if there's nothing larger in life beyond you, and if your pain is the only thing that you see because there is no bigger picture, do you know how many people are walking around like that every day who need Jesus so badly? If we're willing to say, you know, there's a better way, you know, your life has meaning, you're valuable because you're created in the image of God. God loves you. He wants you to be part of his kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, just as Jesus declares here in the gospel. Maybe you've forgotten that the gospel brings these things. Maybe you've become too distracted and those distractions can be powerful. They can be pain, depression, all sorts of sufferings. But Jesus is still king, and he still longs to bring life and peace into every situation that we're in, to bring light into the darkness. So where are you on that? And who's in your life? And where are they on that? So you have homework. You and I have homework this week. I want you to think and pray about this sermon. And I want you to come up with two people. Two names. Or it could be something like that guy that's always sitting there at Mark's. You know, if you don't know the person's name. Identify them. And we're going to intentionally as a congregation, gather those names during Epiphany, and we're going to pray for them because that's where evangelism starts. And after we pray for them, we're going to see what windows and doors God opens for us to shine light into that darkness. And we're going to do that together because this is the work of the church. It's a scary thing, but it's an exciting thing. And you know what? At the end of the day, as John Stott says, to evangelize doesn't mean to win converts, but simply to announce the good news, irrespective of the results. Isn't that beautiful? The pressure is not on us, says John Stott. The pressure is not on us. Our job is to merely proclaim. The pressure is on God, the Holy Spirit. We proclaim he changes hearts. We are faithful to identify, to preach. He converts. 
We have a promise. We have a light to shine in the darkness. As our canticle, one of our canticles says, the Surge Illuminare, arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has dawned upon you, for behold, darkness covers the land, deep gloom enshrouds the peoples. But over you the Lord will rise, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will stream to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawning. Your gates will always be open by day or night. They will never be shut. They will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Violence will no longer be heard in your land, ruin or destruction within your borders. You will call your walls salvation and your portals praise. The sun will no more be your light by day. By night you will not need the brightness of the moon. The Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Why do we say that in morning and evening prayer? Because that is who you are, O people of God. That's who you are in Christ, a bearer of his light, nothing less. Oh, that we would be courageous and obedient enough to do it. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for this passage where we see Jesus going into the darkness. Lord, we invite you into our darkness, whatever that is. We ask that you would cast it out, that you would displace our fear with courage, that you would replace our timidity with assurance and boldness, that we might proclaim the gospel to all nations. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.